Hello and welcome to episode 3.1 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm Victoria Reynolds-Farmer and with me today are regular panelist Marie Halls and guest panelist Laurie Norris. Hi Marie and Laurie. Hello. Hi. I'm Marie Hawes. I'm a doctoral candidate in Renaissance Literature at Florida State University, and I'm currently staying in the Baltimore, D.C. area while working on my dissertation. Hi, I am Laurie Norris. I'm a Ph.D. student at the University of Georgia in Athens, focusing mostly on pop culture studies and rhetoric. And I, as I said, am Victoria Reynolds-Farmer. I live in Waconia, Minnesota, and I'm an adjunct instructor at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota, where I teach English and sociology. So today we are going to talk about third wave feminism by way of Riot Girl Music, and this is the third installment of our four episode feminist history series. Uh, so before we jump right into Riot Girl, a little bit of background about the third wave in general. Most feminists agree that the third wave starts sometime in the 1980s, uh, early to mid-80s, and that it exists primarily due to the fact that this younger generation of feminists feel that neither of the two second wave points of view, the liberal one or the radical one, address concerns important to them. Uh, they feel like these second wave concerns are out of date. Now, partly, this is a positive thing because it suggests that we've made progress, that second wave goals have been met to a certain degree and don't need to be addressed uh, the way that they did in previous years, previous decades. However, lots of third waivers uh, feel not just overlooked, but also belittled by second waivers. They feel like their concerns are not viewed as real or important. And some of this is because of the things that third waivers want to centralize and politicize, namely popular culture and artistic expression focusing on youth culture. Uh, specifically for Riot Girl, uh, this has to do with punk music. While the second waivers do tell us that the personal is political, some second waivers take issue with the kinds of things uh, that third waivers think of as personal. So this gets us into um, our second segment, our reading segment, and this week we are reading the author's note and the third chapter from Sarah Marcus's book, Girls to the Front, The True Story of the Riot Girl Revolution. So Laurie, uh, you're something of a punk music aficionado. Talk to us a little bit about the relationship between uh, punk more broadly and Riot Girl as a subgenre. Well, I think the easiest way for me to explain it is actually through kind of my own personal experience of it. Growing up in suburban Atlanta, where I was a poor kid who was surrounded by rich kids, unsurprisingly, ended up kind of angry. So I came to punk from that anger, that aggression that, that punk rock and honestly, a more heavy metal and hardcore could offer. And it was through the influence of, of musicians like Ian MacKay that I discovered bands like Bikini Kill. I was looking for chicks who could rock because punk rock is all about aggressive, in-your-face confrontation with the status quo and with the perceived privilege of mainstream and Riot Girl music was doubly so because women in punk are often the girlfriends. Uh, and Marcus has that great anecdote about uh, the girls standing along the side of, of the pit la acting as literal coat hangers for dudes who are, who are diving in. And that, that's honestly been most women's experience in punk rock. But then Riot Girl comes along, and people like Kathleen Hanna, their their passion is just infectious. She can't really play, she can't really sing, but she makes you think that maybe I could do this too. And so the whole movement was like was just one big maybe I could do this too. And forget you for telling me I can't just because I'm a girl. I could do whatever I want because I'm a girl. Um, and so musically, it was. 
punk rock and Riot Girl is less about look at how I can perform on this instrument where like heavy metal really values classical trained ability and it's technic technical precision and and just incredible competence with your with your instrument punk rock is the opposite punk rock says all I need is three chords and a and a plug and I can make music I can make something that is purposefully aggressive and confrontational and uncomfortable because I'm going to try and shake you out of your stupor. I'm going to try and make you think differently. And if you don't like it, well, screw you because you're wrong. I'm right. I'm awesome. I'm punk. But chicks in the scene are, are told, I'm awesome. I'm punk. You're a girl. So stand over there. And so Riot Girl was really awesome because it was actually the most punk rock you could get because it was chicks allowed to be cool, allowed to be aggressive, and finding a place to have their voices heard so that they could make some sort of statement against a mainstream culture and a punk rock culture that would otherwise try and keep it down. Um, but it, Riot Girl's gotten a lot of flack from on a musical side of things because honestly they're not great musicians uh, while eventually you end up with women like Carrie Brownstein who can actually really play um and I got a funny story about her for later but uh you don't you don't have a lot of super talented musicians starting out um I like how Marcus describes it as a continuum and it's it's definitely still there in in punk rock the idea that you could just start a band in your garage and that that's cool um with the the bands that got sort of labeled riot girl like bikini kill or bratmobile or heavens to betsy um babes in toyland uh huggy bear eventually bands like gossip um musicianship was secondary to just being able to participate and and to do it in a way that flaunted what everyone expected of you. And that's what I find really, really attractive about it. I got attracted to Riot Girl in a sort of backwards way. Um, I'm a, a bit younger than you, so I missed it when it was actually going on. Um, my introduction to the scene was actually the first time I saw the film uh, Ten Things I Hate About You. Yeah. Uh, so Cat Stratford, played by Julia Stiles, um, is said to be a Riot Girl fan. Um, and one of the ways that the Heath Ledger character sort of seduces her is there in this club listening to a band and he says, they're pretty good, but they're no Bikini Kill or The Raincoats. <laughs> and so I was yeah. like, what are these bands? Let's check this out. Um, this was in the late 90s, where the girl music scene was super bubblegum, super um, sexually passive. Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera, etc. And I was pretty fed up with this. So uh, I, then I found Bikini Kill, and it was like, whoa, you know, music doesn't have to be like that. So that was really interesting. I came to that movie with a similar experience, but was much more judgmental and snobbish because I had already known about Bikini Kill and I knew the raincoats and I got upset because raincoats are just punk. They're not Riot Girl. So let's keep those in separate places. Also, the raincoats are considerably older and British, but whatever. I remember thinking Letters to Cleo was a really odd band to build a feminist manifesto around, seeing as their biggest hit was a cover of a Cheap Trick song. Yes, exactly. I actually have an entire uh, lesson plan about the music in that film and how the music in the movie doesn't work with the music that the movie is supposedly about. Um, when I teach Taming of the Shrew, students always want to talk about 10 Things I Hate About You, so I have a whole day where I we actually listen to Bikini Kill and talk about stuff like that. I think that's fascinating because that so much of what was 
co-opted about Riot Girl is exactly that. Um, you have Revolution Girl style um, being used as a tagline by major media outlets running articles, and they they just want Christina Aguilera style girl power instead of the much more politically charged and and confrontational work that Kathleen Hanna was really shooting for. And it's all in one movie. Yes, uh, but we we're getting ahead of ourselves. <laughs> we'll uh, we'll talk about commercialization and co-opting of the movement in a bit but uh before we do that marie tell us about uh connections between riot girl and the diy movement all right well laurie i think has already started talking about some of this do-it-yourself or diy aesthetic connected with punk um and that's something that Marcus discusses early on in girls to the front it's this punk aesthetic of marcus says Creating something from nothing, fashion from garbage, music and art from whatever was nearest at hand. So like Laurie was saying, you can start a band in your own garage and it's not dependent on your skill level or on having access to extensive equipment. It's something that's more fluid and accessible. To Marcus, this DIY mentality is part of a larger attitude towards the production and the consumption of art. Um, she writes that art, it sees art and culture as commodities to be consumed instead of vital forces to be struggled with and shaped, experimented with and created, breathed and lived. So in terms of the music being created in the Olympia punk scene, this DIY mentality allowed for that ever-shifting sort of formation of band alliances with everybody forming the, the garage bands and just performing uh, one song at a party, that sort of thing. And it was just something that let really anybody form a band with the uh, friends and the materials at hand. And this was an effort, it seems to me, at the democratization of music. That's an effort that's particularly marked with some of the bands associated with Riot Girl. So, for example, in the chapter we have online, uh, Bratmobile's early, unpracticed, largely unpracticed performances are discussed in a positive way for this reason. Alison Wolf of Bratmobile says in the chapter, I think it's important to show people that these structures on stage can totally be broken down, and I'm not trying to play bad music, but who's saying it's bad? So in demonstrating this progress, this spectrum from amateur performer to more practiced and experienced performer over the course of these public performances themselves, um, creating this kind of transparency, bands like Bratmobile demystified the idea of this inaccessible stage. Um, as Marcus says, Bratmobile's insistence on their right to play a sloppy show as long as they had something to say and their energy ran pure, was changing the game. And like Lori said, it was this feeling of, maybe I could do this too. So this democratization of music um, was an effective DIY on Riot Girl, I think. And a DIY aesthetic in art and music currently being produced, I think can still be seen, uh, for example, in a recent MTV interview uh, between Kathleen Hanna and uh, more recently famous artist Grimes. Grimes talks about her early choice to create music on the computer as partly due to that kind of democratization because most people have access to a computer and can use it to create art, and it's the most easy and accessible way to do it yourself. So sort of in the same way, Bratmobile's early performances are implicitly arguing for anyone being able to create art on stage, not needing to pass this rigorous series of initiations to be allowed to perform. And another aspect, I think, of the DIY um, mindset on Riot Girl was the prevalence of zines, which to me seems to be as central uh, an aspect of Riot Girl as the music itself was. So zines like the eponymous Riot Girl zine, and, and zines, of course, are these small sort of home-produced magazines or fanzines that the Riot Girls created and handed out to each other and uh, sold to each other um, 
through the mail and at concerts. Um, so zines like the eponymous Riot Girl zine that was mentioned in this chapter are important in creating the sense of shared identity um, because they claim and name the readers of the zines. Marcus says that the title of Riot Girl created its audience of girls by naming them, radicalized them by addressing them as already radical. And even more importantly, I think the the creation and circulation of zines gave the girls voices. And it's a story that's repeated more than once in Girls to the Front, a story of the girl who's told to make a zine and who does so and thereby joins the community and finds a means of expressing herself. For example, you have Christina Woolner, who wrote a letter to Kathleen Hanna about claiming the label dork and what that label meant to her. And she was told, you've got to do a zine, cool dork girl. And she did, creating the zine Girl Fiend. Woolner describes how having a zine to hand out made her access to this world, the world of Riot Girls and the concert scene, um, that much easier. So zines... Uh, like music, were also something you could do yourself if you just had some paper and sometimes stolen access to a photocopier. And they were cheap to make something anybody could do so that anybody could be heard. And the kinds of things that were said in the zines are important because they, they gave the girls a place to share their stories in this public setting and yet within the community that they chose and to share their rage and also to analyze society and the media. So in this context, the zines were a place for feminist community and a tool for feminist analysis. Great. Uh, thanks, Marie. And that, that gives me a really great segue to um, what I wanted to talk about, uh, about the excerpt from the Marcus, which is the notion of linguistic reclamation and how the, the words that we use and how we define ourselves, something that becomes central, I think, to Riot Girl as a movement. Um, the, the first reclamation that we need to talk seriously about, of course, is that of the word girl. Um, and, and not only um, not only the fact that these girls are calling themselves girls, uh, taking a word that is often negatively associated, often about lack of power and about um, passivity and infantilization. Not only are they claiming that word, but they're giving it a kind of roughness and power by replacing the IR uh, with three R's. So it's it's a grr, it's a growl um, in, instead of this infantilization. Uh, so we've got that um, in the center of the movement. Also, I wanted to talk about the anecdote that begins uh, chapter three, uh, entitled Revolution Summer Girl Style Now. Uh, I'm just going to read a couple of sentences from the beginning of the chapter. Kathleen, that is Kathleen Hanna, lead singer of Bikini Kill, turned toward the back of the stage at DC Space and pulled off her t-shirt in a deliberate prosaic motion. Bikini Kill had played its first few songs fully clothed, but now, wearing just a skirt and a scalloped black bra, Kathleen turned to face the audience so everyone could see what was written on her stomach. Slut. She'd begun doing this at shows in recent months, confronting audiences with what they might want to see a topless woman, and what they might think of such a woman, all in one fell semiotic swoop. Um, and this is, uh, is incredible, I think. Um, this is such a great symbolic gesture of the power of Riot Girl. Um, and I love the description that Marcus gives it of the chapter, uh, one fell semiotic swoop. What do you ladies think about this notion of linguistic reclamation? Um, is it a positive forward move, or is there some degree to which we can't ever distance these negative words, words with negative associations, from those negative associations? Is reclamation possible? Hmm. I don't know if it's possible, but I do think it's positive to, to make the effort. <laughs> I think it's a, a valiant effort, though personally, I don't feel it's possible. Especially, uh, well, Victoria, you know how I feel about the C word and have punched people for for using it. I feel very similarly to um, the, you know, B word. I'm trying, 
I'm trying my best to avoid actually using some of these these phrases because I find them just so un oh, they just make me mad and it's kind of akin to the N word. I don't think there's ever a situation where that word is okay. So sometimes I think slut or the things that Kathleen Hanna was doing with words like slut are really positive. I also think that it still, it still makes me mad. It still makes me really, really mad. Uh, Yeah, I, I'm with the two of you. I I do think that this is a positive effort and I think that anything, um, again, as, as a teacher, um, as someone who, (laughs) Uh, thinks that education is the answer for everything, which seems to be the rallying cry of this podcast um, so far. Um, I I do think that anything that gets us talking about language on a deeper level and and how language works, how language controls us, defines us, uh, is good. But I'm just not sure, as Laurie said, if there's a way to ever completely uh, disentangle words like that that are so loaded from their histories. Uh, when I, um, Laurie, you mentioned the, the C word, um, there is a, a book by Inga Musio um, of that title that, that talks about reclamation, and I occasionally teach um, excerpts from it in, uh, in composition classes when talking about language. Um, but when I when I investigate issues like that, I usually come down um, on the side of um, the power of language is, is wrapped up in all those connotations. Um, I, I usually, when I'm teaching about things like that, I enter the discussion with that quote from Mean Girls, uh, stop calling yourselves sluts and whores because it just gives boys license to call you sluts and whores. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, I think it's also about uh, both reclamation and maybe a performance of transgression, too, to be really in your face with claiming these words and have, I mean, obviously that kind of performance of transgression would be a part of the message that's being sent as well, that we have access to these linguistic spaces and we have a power to define words for ourselves, and that that power um, is uh, it's our right to exercise. That's always been an issue for me. That um, one personally, I have I struggle with being a little punk rock kid and growing up in in that culture, recognizing both the act uh, saying offensive things and trying to to egg people on and the political weight that has um, reconciling that with how squidgy it makes me feel when people use those words period I remember in film school I actually we were talking about aliens and that famous famous scene where Sigourney Weaver straps on the mech suit and um, yells get away from her you and I had a professor ask me about that because he saw that I was cringing. And and I said, well, I have I take issue with that word. I don't f- feel it's empowering. I actually think in that moment it's undercutting um, Sigourney Weaver's character. And it ended up having a really great conversation in, that, in class that day where I, I have to point out I was the only woman in, in that class of 20 guys. So – it made me uncomfortable, but I even then I had to recognize the power of the conversation that we were able to have because of the because of its use. So I applaud people who are not um, who are not afraid to to go to those uncomfortable places in order to shine lights on them. I just don't know that I'm one of them. And I I think that's fine. I'm I'm not sure that I am either. Um, outside of the classroom where as you say, um, that boundary breaking is, is kind of more performative. Though with, with this, these instances with Riot Girl, I, I think it does seem pretty positive to me in that they're, they're reclaiming, trying to reclaim the term and performing that transgression. Um, and then also through that kind of asking the question of, 
so what if I am? Like, so what if I am a slut? You know, this, does that give you a right to have power over me, um, to oppress me, or to mistreat me? And the answer, of course, you're looking for is no, it does not. Um, that identity would not uh, give somebody else power over you. So I think that's part of the message as well, which is certainly a positive message. Yeah, the way that they use phrases like slut, the the way that they're they're reclaiming it is I think different than the way that hip hop community has has taken on the N word where um every time slut gets dropped, it, you're reminded of how unpleasant it is and the offense that it causes even even while it's being reclaimed. Um, because I think the the genre the the movement is so much more politically motivated than some other pop culture artifacts are about about these linguistic issues. Listeners, if you have more to add on uh, this topic or any topic we discussed today, please feel free to. Um, hit up the Facebook page, the blog comments, let us know what you think um, about reclamation, about language, about any of the things we discussed today. Uh, so before we leave the discussion of the book, um, we've we've hit on the feminist part of our podcast title a lot today, but not so much on the Christian part. So um, what are some some possible Christian responses to Riot Girl as a genre and the kind of empowerment it puts forward? I've always thought that being a real Christian, following Christianity in the path that Christ laid out, was actually the most punk rock thing you could do. Because it's the exact opposite of what mainstream culture wants you to do. Mainstream culture wants you to judge everyone and to be in a constant competition with them whereas Christ teaches us it's all about love and and being open to people and seeing people as as people and not objects and Riot Girl is about anti-objectification it's about turning people these figures back into individuals without getting into like you know the the political morass that individual actually is but the radical otherness of of loving everyone around you it's just the most christian thing you can do well my reaction is uh like laurie's is pretty positive i hadn't thought about that separation from the mainstream culture as being something that could be uh connected with a christian response that's a great point that you raised but for me it's more about um having access have accepting a kind of vocality in the face of oppression that's something that appeals to me about the riot girl movement maybe not some of the exclusivity that was talked about in later chapters or some of the uh, perceived self-righteousness that caused problems near the end of the riot girl movement um, but to have this space to listen to each other and to affect change both on the personal level that comes from sharing your stories with each other and being there for each other and on the large scale level of affecting political change, attempting to affect political change um, while enjoying these artistic interests and activities in community this uh, seems like a good thing to me <laughs> and sometimes I think that we as Christians may get the idea that to speak out against oppression or to be vocal even maybe this non-christian kind of action especially one that's not for a christian woman so we confuse pacifism with apathy but to create peace requires enormous amounts of action and passion and in this case uh by peace by creating peace i mean putting an end to various forms of oppression and that's something that i liked in that same interview with kathleen hannah and grimes is that kathleen hannah's definition of feminism in that interview um was that to her it was really about ending all forms of oppression and she starts with gender depression because that's where she experiences it herself um and i believe that christians are called to reject oppression not necessarily through violence but certainly through action and the riot girl movement and community 
um, seems to me like one that's in line with that impulse there. And definitely for me, that kind of vocality is something that's not forbidden for a Christian woman either, even though I'm sure some complementarian views of gender would say that, yes, Christians should be active against oppression, but that's, a, that's an activity that's for men. You know, women should let men protect them and not be vocal, and especially not angry, which is maybe a term that we as Christian women need to reclaim, <laughs> um, because that's unfeminine. And that's a simplification of those messages, but I think the core is there, and we've probably heard people saying versions of that. But I do think, and I'm beginning to think more and more, that vocality and opposition to oppression is you know, not limited to some male sphere of action and is a Christian vocation. Um, a few days ago, uh, in my Bible reading, I, was, I reached Proverbs 31, which was mentioned a couple episodes near, ago in the, that, that great discussion of modesty culture that you had here, Victoria. And uh, you mentioned in that episode the ways in which Proverbs 31 has been misused in enforcing this female-specific modesty code. But as I was reading Proverbs 31 this time, <laughs> it struck me that, in fact, I do want to be a Proverbs 31 woman. Which sounds strange, but let me explain. I don't want to be a Proverbs 31 woman in terms of being defined according to how useful or acceptable I am to a husband who is assumed to exist, or in terms of getting up before dawn to do domestic labor in the house, you know. Um, or in terms of reinforcing that perceived dichotomy between the fleeting charm and the internal worth. But earlier in Proverbs 31, before that description of the wife of noble character, we have the sayings of King Lemuel, an oracle that his mother taught him. And it never struck me before, but this section, if it's framed as the teachings of his mother, is this female-voiced section of the Bible in which the woman is instructing the king. And within that section, we have Proverbs 31.8, which reads in the NIV, Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. And I don't, I don't usually have emotional reactions when I'm reading the Bible alone, because often I just don't read it with new enough eyes. But when I read this, I had an emotional reaction, because it's like, here's this injunction coming from a woman, and that she is fulfilling and saying it, you know, and that she's teaching her son to perform this action as well. And this command to speak up then isn't gender specific here because it's, it's a woman doing the speaking here. And so that, uh, that's the Proverbs 31 woman that I want to aspire to be. And, uh, in terms of possible Christian responses to riot girl as well, I'm sure there are many, uh, Christian responses that would not be as positive as, uh, Lori's and mine. Um, one of them sort of suggested by a section in Riot Girl that was actually a little bit horrifying to me, even though it wasn't a response to Riot Girl particularly, but was rather just a description in a later chapter than the one we have online of the atmosphere in which Riot Girls was emerging and acting. I'm talking about that infamous Pat Robertson fundraising letter from 1992. If, any, if you remember that. Very well, yes. Uh, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't remember. But I was very small, but I, I have read about it, yes. I mean, remember hearing about it, yeah. But according to Marcus, this letter attacked feminism as, quote, a socialist, anti-family, political movement that encourages women to leave their husbands, kill their children, practice witchcraft, destroy capitalism, and become lesbians. End quote. So we could, we could break down the particular concerns that each of these items is suggesting, which is really broad. But I think the main idea, uh, the extremely violent and fearful reaction is clear. And what was particularly horrifying to me here is what this fundraising letter was responding to. According to Marcus, it was responding to this proposed measure that would have added the words and women to a line in the Iowa State Constitution that read, all men are, by nature, free and equal, and have certain un inalienable rights. This simple statement of equality, which is the same move that you remember we talked about with the Declaration of Rights and Sentiments of 1848 that added the words and women to the Declaration of Independence, that this same move would cause such fear and anger only about 
you know, 20 years ago in this country is like a little frightening to me. More than and, a little frightening, I think. Yeah, It's just straight up terrifying. And it's also, it's shameful to me that reactions like this can often be found coming from the church, which is, you know, as a body of Christ, it's my church. And that's terribly shameful. Um, so in that kind of atmosphere, the vocality of the riot girls it seems clearly called for and is definitely more in line with how I would choose to practice Christianity than, you know, something like Robertson's letter would be. But at the same time, like, as I'm talking about this, and, I mean, we need to acknowledge, of course, that Riot Girl is not a Christian movement. And I also need to remember, as I'm discussing my particular Christian responses, which I want to stress, I, I don't see as some generic unitary Christian response that all people who identify as Christians will have or must have. And I don't believe that that kind of unitary Christian response exists or should be enforced. Um, but I need to remember in these discussions that as people who identify as Christians in this country and culture, we are in positions of privilege because of that. And I wouldn't want to map my responses um, onto other people's experiences. And, you know, many and likely most of the riot girls would not have identified as Christian. Um, and while the movement, though, of course, flawed as all movements are, is largely in line with what I would think of as a Christian response to oppression. I think I need to remember, too, that that's a response that's it's a human response, not just a Christian response or a religious response. And maybe in a previous episode came a little too close to equating Christianity with what I see as positive responses to oppression in the discussion of the temperance movement um, and first wave feminism. But in any case, it's it's important to remember that um, while that kind of response would grow out of my faith for me, it can come from other places and other experiences and impulses for other people. And that would not make that positive response any less positive or worthy in intention or effect. I think those are some really excellent points, Marie. And they re kind of reflect how I have felt being a member of, of the punk and sort of late stage riot girl communities being Christian and, and have and and that being a significant part of my my persona for a very long time, but also being a little punk, having to explain how I'm not how how I'm trying to come uh, to acknowledge the privilege that is granted to me because of my Christian status here in America, but also where I recognize that that Christian status is also can also be a form of oppression against other people and to, to try mm -hmm. and model a, a, a Christian, a Christian person for people who would otherwise be put off by the Pat Robertsons of the world and assume that that's the only form of Christianity out there. This, this one that honestly I can't identify with. And so yeah. that that's always been a, a call for me. It's like having to be to wear the mantle of the punk, but also the mantle of of a follower of Christ. Yeah, Christianity is not monolithic, and I think it's often perceived as just this one block, this one idea, and that that's a perception that hopefully we we can try to change. <laughs> yeah. A absolutely. Uh, I'm I'm not sure I even have uh, anything else to add to the Christian responses discussion. Everything both of you said was was right on. Um, I was also going to talk about the uh, Robertson witchcraft lesbianism quote, so that's covered. <laughs> um, yeah, excellent. Uh, I I don't really have much to add to that. So so let's move on um, to. Our, our next topic within the reading, which is, uh, Marie alluded to it a little bit, um, so Riot Girl eventually falls out of favor, uh, becomes a movement associated with the the past, not just historically, but wi within feminism, and part of the reason why is because the movement itself gets co-opted and commercialized. Um, so let's 
we, we talked a little bit earlier with our 10 things I hate about you discussion about how that happens but um, can we talk a little bit more about um, what comes after Riot Girl and why yeah I think what happened with Riot Girl is is very similar to what happened with alternative music in general um, it when Nirvana broke and radio stations started playing what would be called grunge, which I don't think uh, Kurt Cobain ever would have really wanted to be a part of because he saw himself so much more in line with punk and and feminist issues, but also like the Sonic Youth. Um, that's me getting way off track. I think Riot Girl got bought up, repackaged, and then sold to tweens in America as pinkified girl power and Spice Girls became feminism and oh, the the anger I think a lot of, a lot of the anger drained out of feminism because honestly we were in a very prosperous time and a lot of what drives punk is the class warfare that 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 separates the haves from the have-nots. And Riot Girl was born out of recognizing not only that class warfare, but the gender warfare that was going on at the same time. And so in the late 90s, early 2000s, when for the most part in this country, people had it pretty good, the kind of righteous anger that, that fueled Riot Girl's fire was dampened and commercialized. And and while Hannah would go on and and form La Tigra and some amazing bands and Slater Kenny would fly the flag until Wild Flag picked it back up, um, a lot of what women in rock were doing got shoved under underground again, and the the big the big spotlights were shown on pop star princesses. And Britney Spears became the quote-unquote feminist role model because she was so sexual. And it, it's as if um, all the, the record companies were listening to what Bikini Kill were saying and then laughing maniacally as they did the exact opposite. Uh, yeah, you you mentioned um, the the transition from Riot Girl to Girl Power. Uh, that's something I wanted to talk about, and and something that I said a little bit earlier. I, as a young teenager in the late '90s, was really um, disgusted by that. This was sort of the only pop cultural option for me to listen to and absorb and be. Um, I mean, I, I listened to the Spice Girls. I liked their music. I may or may not have seen the movie Spice World in the theater three times. <laughs> uh, maybe. But I I knew, like, there there was part of me even at the time that knew that these five options for what it was to be a girl, uh, you can be sexy like Ginger, or posh like Victoria, or scary like Mel B, or sporty like Mel C., uh, or who am I forgetting? Oh, or you can be a baby, which is super empowering. <laughs> uh, I, I knew that, that these options were, were reductionist and limited at the time, at least part of me did, even though I didn't really have the words for that dissatisfaction yet. So this, this commercialization is, um, is powerful and, and also a little gross. And I think also... The, the the riot girl scene it didn't do itself any favors because the strident militantism of some of the women in in the in the scene was really off-putting and it became um unpleasant to be around and at its heart punk rock is fun because it's thumbing its nose at at all the expectations of youth and just doing whatever it wanted to in the moment. And so the kind of um, less aggressive anger and just bitter anger that started to seep in combined with the way that some of the, the, cru the crucial bands in, in the movement became, I'm going to say it, sellouts. It just, it, it rang the death knell 
for the movement in general from an aesthetic standpoint, if nothing else. Yeah, and part of uh, what Marcus talks about in Girls to the Front with uh, the sort of petering out of Riot Girl is that debate over how they relate to the media and then, um, like Laurie was talking about, the, the shift in perception of Riot Girl because of that kind of media exploitation. And part of it also seemed to be a little bit of, like going along with her, um, what Laurie was saying about the extreme militant um, nature of some of the people working within Riot Girl um, was that uh, there is a little bit, it seemed like a little bit of a lack of intersectionality was something that Marcus talks about a few points in the book. Um, so, like, especially in some of the later chapters, she talks about this, uh, the perceived lack of space for, a little bit for lesbians, um, much for girls of color and working class girls, and that led to sort of divisions within the riot girl community. So, going along with that, I uh, wanted to um, say that, yeah, part of my response to the riot girl movement was uh, to sort of question that lack of intersectionality and, um, brings to mind um, the famous uh, blog post three years ago from Flavia Zodan, who raised the cry, my feminism will be intersectional or it will be bullshit. And that's, you know, something that, of course, resonates with these, some of these problems in the later uh, era of Riot Girl and with a lot of what you were talking about last episode with the exclusionary nature of some forms of the second wave feminism that led to the creation of the womanist and mujerista movements. Um, and uh, in connection with that, I want to, to recommend a post on humility and the privileged church that Abby, uh, the blog, Adipose Rex, uh, in which she paraphrases Zodan saying, my theology will be intersectional or it will be So, that uh, was a little bit of my response there when reading about the end of Riot Girl. Um, but really, as I was reading Girls to the Front, since I don't know much about music history or the punk rock scene, I was thinking more about uh, not a direct descendant of Riot Girl in terms of music, but something that seems like a kind of parallel space today for feminist discussions and media analysis that's linked to shared consumption and production of art. It's something that I see a great deal on Tumblr, and I'm thinking particularly of some of the more fandom-connected Tumblr communities rather than like every single blog on Tumblr. But in some of these communities on Tumblr, I see a great deal of feminist discussion, and it's often very nuanced. Um, if you've been on Tumblr, you know how you have the post and then often you'll have a user responding to it and then somebody responding to that comment and the post just sort of circulates and recirculates and the arguments play off of each other and become more detailed and nuanced as the post circulates more and more. Um, and I feel like I've learned a lot just from reading these discussions that occur on Tumblr. And as with Riot Girl, with the bands and the concerts and the zines on Tumblr, you have this shared consumption of art, the uh, television, sh television shows and movies and music along with the creation of art, with the fan art, the fan fiction, personal art, that's all being shared within the particular communities that the users can choose to be a part of. And there's also the, that same kind of DIY mentality that we were talking about, that there's the idea that you should be able to post anything that you create, and it shouldn't be rejected or mocked based on the skill level displayed, but accepted for what it says. And... You, along with that, at least in my experience on Tumblr, get this very detailed cultural analysis and media criticism, especially with something like rape culture, but really more largely with any kind of social justice issue. And I asked three of the people that I follow on Tumblr, um, all of whom I identify as feminists to varying extents, what their experience with feminist criticism on Tumblr has been. One just said that it was pretty positive. Another says that, and this is one who mostly identifies as a feminist, but her only concern with the term is that feminism may be connected in some people's minds with gendered hatred rather than equality. But this person says, most of the stuff I see on Tumblr about feminism is really violently for or against stuff. 
And she adds that she finds it a little annoying how much offense people take at things. Um, so, like the riot girls with the bands and the zines, and like some a little bit of the militant um, kinds of attitudes that Laurie mentioned, I think many Tumblr users are very violently vocal and angry in discussions of feminist issues, and that's a violence that this person is noticing, I think. The third person I asked said, I never considered myself a feminist before joining Tumblr, so that was nearly two years ago now, but I believe that that was because, like most of the world, I had a skewed perception of what feminism is. Tumblr has done a good job of showing me what feminism is and allowing me to form my own opinions of the matter. Um, and she also thinks that Tumblr seems to be more open to feminist discussions, not only because of the demographics, so the women sort of seem to outnumber the, women, the men, um, but also because of the structure, because with the virtual communities that you join on Tumblr, which isn't a real name platform, um, you have the choice of what communities to join. She says people choose who or who not to follow on Tumblr based on their interests, where on other social media sites you follow or friend people simply because you know them. From this, you get a lot of personal baggage tagged along to any discussion that's made, whereas on Tumblr it's possible for two people to have an in-depth discussion and for them to not even be following each other. So that community formation, too, seems to me a little like the way that Riot Girls could share with each other through zines and through concerts and conventions. They didn't already have to know each other, though they did end up forming some of these cliques that's talked about in the book. Um, but this person also expresses a concern that there's little room for dissenting voices that she would fear being openly harassed for posting anything outside of the Tumblr norm. Um, and that's one of the same concerns I think that Marcus discusses in the final chapters of Girls to the Front with some of the individual Riot Girl communities falling apart, not just from the internal debates over how to relate to the media, but also from those communities no longer being seen as safe spaces for free discussion by everybody in the communities. But on, on the whole, I mean, I'm really pretty encouraged by what I've seen on Tumblr that it's like with Riot Girl, it's this place where people, uh, primarily young girls, though of course, you know, the demographics on Tumblr are diverse, they can engage in this shared artistic experiences and receive the tools for nuanced analysis of the media along with the sense of community. And it really can uh, teach people things and give them these tools. And it's also like Riot Girl is a kind of community that's often looked down on. As Marcus says at the beginning of Girls to the Front, the Riot Girl movement didn't receive the attention that it deserved in scholarship because, quote, people didn't know how to treat the lives of teenage girls as if they mattered, end quote. And that's sort of the same with Tumblr. Um, but it is this community that, like Riot Girl, seems to really raise awareness of gender issues, among other things, many other things as well. That's really interesting, Marie. I, I've looked at Tumblr a little bit, basically, through other people's links. I have not engaged with it um, as a community, it sounds like, as deeply as you have. Um, but, but now, given what you've said about uh, media engagement and, and empowerment of youth, uh, I'm definitely going to check that out at a deeper level. Yeah, I've only, I don't really post anything. I just follow a bunch of people, but it's so encouraging to me to see so much intense feminist discussion going on. That's really excellent. Thanks. Uh, thanks for that. So... Now it's, uh, it's time for our final segment, the passing on segment where we recommend things we think are cool that we think you should think are cool too. So, uh, Laurie, since you're our guest, let's start with you. What do you have to recommend? Well, um, I have a couple of bands for you. Um, Wild Flag is sort of like a super band of, of punk rock chicks from back in the day, most famous, Carrie Brownstein now on Portlandia. Uh they're they're pretty great. Uh really good solid rock and roll. And then from a, a more let's carry on the flag of Riot Girl into the punk rock twenty first century from Atlanta, the band The Coat Hangers. Love that cheeky name. They've been around since about two thousand six and play a lot with the Black Lips. 
Got that same sort of garage vibe, very DIY, loosey-goosey kind of stuff, but with a really cheeky and political bent to, to what they're doing. Lots of fun. Cool. Sounds great. Um, and I, I second that Wild Flag recommendation. They were going to be a part of mine, too. So, yay, Wild Flag. Uh, Marie, I'll how about you? Up. <laughs> um, well, I'm just going to recommend the interview that I already mentioned uh, that was on MTV, an interview where Kathleen Hanna and Grimes were sort of interviewing each other. And that's was kind of a cool thing because they talk about how they came to feminism and what feminism means to them. Um, so that's, that's a lot of fun. And since I mentioned the blog Adipose Rex already, I'll go ahead and recommend to her post um, that was in response to uh, what was under discussion a couple of episodes ago on this podcast that uh, FYI, if you're a teenage girl blog post, um, because she ha- Abby at Adipose Rex had a really good response to that too. So I'll put that link up online. Great. Uh, all, all of those things sound really interesting. Uh, so I'll finish up the recommendations. Um, I already said I second Laurie's uh, Wild Flag Rex. They're a really fun band. Um, Carrie Brownstein is incredibly talented. Uh, like them a lot. And uh, I don't want to just repeat a recommendation. So in line with our discussion about um, pop culture as a means to um, in investigate power uh, dynamics and social messages. Um, somebody linked me to a YouTube video um, earlier this week called Spellblock Tango, uh, which is a, a revisioning, a rewrite of um, the Kander and Ebb song from Chicago, Cell Block Tango, where uh, five or six women who are in prison talk to you about um, the, the various crimes that they have committed, and this rewrite stars Disney villains. Um, so it's, it's really funny and interesting and investigates um, how fairy tales shape us, our constructions of things like masculinity and femininity and good and evil. Um, also, just as a video, um, the production values are amazing, the costumes are amazing, um, and it stars some people that some of you might know, um, Adam Lambert from American Idol, um, Amber Riley from Glee, um, and, and a couple other uh, Broadway stars. So that's my recommendation. Check out the video Spellblock Tango. In the spirit of recommending recommendations, I can also recommend that one. That video is amazing. <laughs> All right, good. Uh, lots of lots of mutual recommendation respect going on here. <laughs> okay, so that wraps up episode three point one. Thanks for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We want to hear from you. If you have a topic or a reading recommendation for a future show, or if you just want to drop us a line and say hi, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page and check out the show notes from this and other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. For Marie Hawes and Lori Norris, I'm Victoria Reynolds-Farmer. Tune in in two weeks when we'll discuss fourth-wave feminism and the problem with the phrase, I'm not a feminist, but. Until then, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love.